0: Well, good morning, Redeemer. My name is Brian, and we're going to continue our series in Mark this morning. And uh, as I preach to an empty sanctuary this morning, I'm going to imagine a a picture of all of you here this morning. And me imagining that picture of you all here this morning is a promise. It's a promise that one day prayerfully soon, we will gather together again and fill this sanctuary and sing God's praises to him. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Mark 14, and we're going to consider the innocent seized, the innocent seized. We have a deep desire to see the innocent go free. In the 1994 film Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne is a banker who's convicted of murder, and he goes to prison, to Shawshank. And as he's there, all of a sudden, folks discover, the prison guard discovers that he is a banker and that he has these special set of skills that he knows about finances. And so the prison guard begins to use him to do their taxes. And then they use him to get financial advice. And he keeps climbing the ladder, and eventually he gets to the point that the warden is using Andy Dufresne to launder his money. Well, Andy Dufresne gets so valuable to Shawshank Prison that when a new witness, a new prisoner arrives at Shawshank, and he's a witness to the fact that Andy Dufresne is innocent. The warden has that witness, that prisoner, shot down. And uh, you can just feel the oppression. You can feel the oppression. And then later, when Andy Dufresne crawls 500 yards through, through human sewage you can feel the sheer exhilaration as he's set free, because we have a deep desire to see the wrong righted. We have a deep desire to see the innocent go free. Just Mercy was written by Brian Stevenson in 2014, and it became a popular film in 2019, starring Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx. And Just Mercy is the story that Bryan Stevenson tells, and the main character is Walter McMillan. And Walter McMillan, in 1988, was wrongfully convicted of murder in Alabama, and he had a rock-solid alibi. He was at a church fish fry with more than 20 people on the other side of town when the murder happened. But through coercion and perjury, Through racism and oppression, Walter McMillan gets wrongfully convicted of murder. And then the judge steps in above normal protocol and assigns to Walter McMillan the death penalty. And you can just feel the oppression. And when Brian Stevenson hears of Walter McMillan's case... And Brian Stevenson, by the way, founded the Equal Justice Initiative. When, when Brian Stevenson hears of Walter McMillan's case, he goes and he fights racism and oppression and he has the trial retried. And so when Walter McMillan is exonerated and free to go, you feel this sheer exhilaration because we have a deep longing for wrong to be righted. We have a deep longing for the innocent. To go free. And by the way, that desire to see the innocent go free doesn't fit with the worldview of Darwin and evolution and natural selection. If our world was shaped by the survival of the fittest, where the powerful oppress the weak, if that's our world, then power and oppression should feel natural. It should feel normal. It should feel typical, but it doesn't. There's something deep in our souls that longs for justice. We want wrongs righted. We wanted to see good win over evil. We have a deep desire to see the innocent go free. Well, as we come to Mark 14, verses 43 to 52 this morning, there are five Repeated words that shape our text. Five repeated words. The first word that we see is kiss. Kiss is repeated two times. The second word is seize. Seize or seized is repeated four times. Sword is repeated three times. Linen cloth is repeated twice. And naked is repeated twice, although only once in the English. Those five repeated words shape our text. We're going to look at the text this morning under three headings. In verses 43 to 46, I want you to see a kiss and betrayal. A kiss and betrayal. And then in verses 47 to 49, I want you to see a sword and revolution. A sword and revolution. And then in verses 49 to 52, I want you to see a linen cloth and betrayal a linen cloth, and betrayal. And by the way, in each of these sections, there's a primary uh, character other than Jesus, so a secondary character, if you will. In A Kiss and Betrayal, we have Judas. And in A Sword and Revolution, we have Peter. And then in, um, then in our third category, uh, a linen cloth and abandonment, uh, we have Mark. And by the way, the word seize is in every section of the text. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The innocent was seized so that the condemned could go free. The innocent was seized so that the condemned could go free. Just a little background as we come to our text this morning. Uh, Before uh, the passage that we have this morning, Jesus, earlier in Mark 14... And I issued the passover and in issuing the passover he says that this cup is my blood of the covenant and then later he's at the garden of gethsemane and he's wrestling with his father and pleading lord take this cup from me but not my will but your will be done and then he's wrestling with his three disciples who came with him to gethsemane and he's saying stay awake Watch and pray. And now we get to our passage this morning. Let's look together at God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Mark 14, starting at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, this, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And a young man followed him with, that, with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we see this morning Jesus seized, I ask that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So first of all, then, let's consider together a kiss and betrayal in verses 43 to 46. Now, this betrayal didn't catch Jesus off guard. Jesus expected it. If you go back to the previous verse, verse 42, at the end of the affair in in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says in verse 42, Rise, let us be going. And then he says this, See, my betrayer is at hand. And then verse 43, Immediately, while he's still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And Judas gives them a sign, and that sign in verse 44 is a kiss. Now, why do they need that sign? Well, first of all, let me set the stage. It's dark, right? This is after the Passover meal. This is after that dinner that they had together, and it's after at least a prolonged period of time praying in Gethsemane, and it's on the Mount of Olives. It was night. And now the Passover uh, would have been during the full moon, but in a grove of olive trees on the mountain at night, in the midst of the confusion and tension in the darkness, the crowd that was sent from the chief priests, they wanted a sign because they wanted to make sure that they got the right guy. They're arresting Jesus under the cover of darkness and away from the public because they feared the people, and they wanted the element of surprise. You see, the children of darkness do deeds of darkness in the darkness of night, and so they needed a sign. And the sign was a kiss. Now, this was a standard greeting in New Testament times. In Greek culture, a disciple would greet his rabbi with a kiss. They obviously weren't practicing social distancing at this time. And this kiss was a sign of intimacy, a sign of affection, a sign of deep knowledge. But now that sign of intimacy and affection has become a means of betrayal. In verse 44, Judas says... The one I kiss is the man. The phrase, the kiss of death, originates here. And historically, this is acknowledged as the greatest betrayal of all time. Have you ever been betrayed? Really soul-crushingly betrayed? Someone you knew well? Someone in your inner circle? Someone that you trusted betrayed you? Do you remember how that felt? Two weeks ago was March 15th, and March 15th is known as the Ides of March. Uh, It was a Roman deadline for settling debts, and March 15th, the Ides of March, became famous uh, in 44 B.C., because that was the date upon which Julius Caesar was assassinated, Now Julius Caesar was a Roman dictator, and he was growing in power, and he wanted to eliminate the Senate, right? So that he could become emperor, so that he could become, as it would be called, Caesar. And he had a good friend, his best friend, Brutus, who was a senator. And Brutus became convinced that the only way to save the Republic was through the death of Caesar. And as the story is told, a seer warns Caesar, and he says to Caesar, beware the Ides of March, beware of March 15th. And then later on March 15th, as Caesar is on his way to the theater of Pompeii, Caesar says to the seer, the Ides of March are come. And the seer says, Aye, Caesar, but not gone. And Caesar arrives at the theater and is stabbed in the back 23 times by members of the Senate. And as he's being stabbed in the back, he turns and he sees Brutus. And he says, et tu, Brute, and you too, Brutus. You see, Caesar didn't see it coming. Do you know what that feels like, that betrayal? But you see, Jesus wasn't surprised. He wasn't taken off guard like Caesar. Jesus was the seer. He predicted his betrayal. He knew it was coming, and Jesus didn't succumb to personal hatred. Do you know that intensity of emotion when you've been betrayed? It's absolutely overwhelming. I don't deserve this. No. Why are you doing this? But there is no hatred. In Jesus, even when it's one of the twelve, one of the closest men that he's been pouring his life into for three years, even when it's done with a kiss, when a sign of intimacy becomes a symbol of betrayal, even when it's done under the cover of darkness by the children of darkness, there is no hatred in Jesus. And then it comes in verse 46, and they laid hands on him and seized him. And Mark's succinctness, his brevity carries a certain force, a certain weight. Jesus, the innocent one, has been betrayed and seized. Can you feel the weight of that moment? There's a kiss and a betrayal. And Jesus has been seized. Secondly, then, in verses 47 to 49, we have a sword and revolution. How would you respond? Can you put yourself in the narrative, right? Can you kind of dwell and inhabit the narrative for just a minute one of your close friends, one of your inner circle of 12, has just betrayed your beloved teacher, and he's been seized, and there's a crowd, of, a crowd bearing swords and clubs surrounding him. How would you respond? Well, Peter, the Gospel of John, identifies this unnamed man in Mark as Peter. Peter draws his sword and he strikes the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Ha, Peter, brash, Peter. Act before you think, Peter. Ready, fire, aim, Peter. He draws his sword. He's ready for battle. Some think that Peter swung wildly and the chief priest's servant ducked and he just cut off the ear. Others think that the sword came down and hit the chief priest's servant on the helmet and it came down and then hit his ear, and others think that Peter was adept with a sword, and he took his sword and he intentionally cut off the, the, the priest's servant's ear. Why? To, de- to defile him so that he could no longer be, uh, he could no longer, uh, he could no longer work in uh, the high priest's presence because he was now deformed. It was an intentional symbolic wound. But the point is this. Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of the sword. Matthew in his Gospel in chapter 26 adds this, Then Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who live by the sword will die by the sword. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and that He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? And Luke, the physician in Luke 22, adds this he says no more of this and jesus touches malchus's ear and heals him now these details aren't said explicitly in mark but they are implied you see jesus calms the crowd and eases the tension and says have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me you see jesus is saying my kingdom isn't a kingdom Of the sword. Now we read robber and we think, you know, a a petty thief who stole a loaf of bread, but it's much more than that. You see, a better translation here of this word is revolutionary or insurrectionist. It's someone leading a campaign of violence where one regime takes another regime over by force. The NIV captures this by saying, Am I leading a rebellion? said Jesus. You see, Jesus is saying, you've got this all wrong. My kingdom isn't about swords and clubs and power and oppression. You've misunderstood my kingdom completely. But it's not just Peter who draws his sword, uses his sword, and then puts his sword back away. Or the crowd who comes out with swords and clubs who, understand, who misunderstand the nature of Jesus' kingdom, perhaps Judas does too. Nothing about Judas's motive is given, but one commentator says that some have suggested that Judas was frustrated at what seemed to him to be Jesus' failure to take opportunities available to take over the kingdom from the Romans. Others even most kindly guess that the act of betrayal was an attempt to force Jesus' hand to make things develop. It's as if Judas was saying, Jesus, let me help you out. If I back you into a corner, you'll come out swinging and we'll finally be free of Roman oppression and Roman occupation. We'll finally usher in your kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom isn't a kingdom of the sword. Jesus goes on to share more about the nature of his kingdom there in verse 49. He says, Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of the sword. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of teaching in the temple. It's not a kingdom of power and oppression, but of inward transformation. Jesus is saying, I haven't come to set you free from the bondage and occupation and tyranny of Rome. I'm setting you free from the bondage of sin and the tyranny of death. But actually, I would argue, Jesus is a revolutionary. He's the most revolutionary revolutionary in the history of the world, and Jesus' revolution actually does involve a sword, just not how you'd think. You see, the word sword only appears three times in Mark, all of them here in our passage. Do you know the first time the word sword is used in the Bible? After the fall and the curses, God kicks Adam out of the Garden of Eden, and he places the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, in order to get back to the tree of life, that promise of eternal life, That flaming sword must be dealt with. It's a sword of judgment. It's the consequence of sin. It's what separates us from eternal life, the sword. And Jesus is saying, My kingdom isn't one where you pick up the sword for me. In my kingdom, I'll fall on the sword for you. You see, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The king doesn't wield the sword. He steps in front of the sword. He takes a death blow that was intended for us, and it falls on him. Jesus takes the sword for us. It's a whole new revolution. Peter, you can put your sword away. My kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. A sword and a revolution. And then in verses 49 to 52, we see a linen cloth and abandonment. A linen cloth and abandonment. Jesus is seized, and all the disciples scatter. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Now, the NIV and the King James capture more of the emotional import here. The NIV says, then everyone deserted him and fled. The King James says, and they all forsook him and fled. Jesus has been forsaken. Jesus has been deserted. Everyone is abandoning him. He's alone. But before they deserted him, before they abandoned him, Jesus spoke. And the order here is important. You see, Jesus speaks and then the disciples flee. What does He say? Is at the end of verse 49. Jesus says, But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Well, which Scriptures? The very last time the word sword is used in the Old Testament is in Zechariah 13.7. Awake, O sword! Against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus has already used Zechariah 13:7 to predict this moment. Back in Mark 14, 27, Jesus says to his disciples, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And do you remember? Do you remember how they responded? Their response was to make a vow. Peter says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And now they break their vow. They're fleeing. This is a reversal of Jesus' call to discipleship to each of them again and again. He said, follow me, Peter, follow me. Andrew, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Levi, Matthew, follow me. This is the call of discipleship, but they're now, they're not following. They're fleeing. It's an outbreak of cowardice in a time that requires courage. And by the way, by the way, these guys are the future of the church. The church depends on these men, and they're fleeing. It's every man for himself. Save yourself if you can. But Jesus doesn't flee. He stands. He lets himself be seized in the darkness. He's saying, only I can save you. I am your anchor. I will not flee. I will face death for you. And so Jesus is taken captive. He stands alone, abandoned, deserted. But brothers and sisters, this is just the beginning of Jesus' abandonment. You see, on the cross, as Jesus is hanging there, drinking the cup of God's wrath, down to the dregs, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, laba Sabatini, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus is abandoned completely and utterly by the Father himself so that this will never be our ultimate reality. We may feel abandoned And alone, especially in this time of social distancing and quarantine and isolation. But even when you feel the most lonely, that will never be the final word. You see, we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is abandoned, so that this will never be your final reality. Now, verses 51 and 52 are unique to Mark. Look at verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his naked body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, in the Bible, nakedness is associated with shame. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, right after that marriage in the garden, it says not that they're naked and sinless, not that they're naked and perfect, not that they're naked and really happy, but that they're naked and unashamed. And then after the fall in Genesis chapter 3... Adam and Eve are hiding and covering their nakedness to cover their shame first. They cover it with fig leaves, and then God covers it with animal skins from the first sacrifice. And so when Mark includes this, he's condemning the young man who was seized. This was a matter of deep shame. You see, everyone fled that night, but this young man fled naked. It's a whole different level of shame. You see, this young man chose shame instead of confessing Jesus. Now, why does Mark include this detail when others don't remember? Mark is this man of action. He's sparse with details. Why does Mark include this? Mark is putting himself in the story. This is his signature. He was there. In church history, there have been a variety of answers to the identity of the young man. But the overwhelming scholarly consensus today is that this is Mark, also known as John Mark from the book of Acts. You see, Mark would have been a young man at this point. And that linen cloth that he's wearing is a sign of wealth. And Mark came from a wealthy family. In fact, tradition holds that Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Passover in Mark's family's home. This is Mark's signature. He was there. Well, why include such an embarrassing story about yourself? I mean, if I'm writing this, I'm going to skip over that detail, right? Why include this embarrassing story? It's because Mark understands the gospel. And the gospel begins with owning your own failure. Mark is saying, I was there." I fled too. I did a deeply shameful thing that night. I abandoned my Savior. I was such a coward that I ran away naked. I chose the shame of nakedness rather than confessing Jesus. And you've been there, haven't you? Some of you walked in this morning covered by shame. Maybe it's voices from your past. Some of it may be invalid, but some of it's valid. You've made bad decisions. You've sinned. You've yelled at your kids. You've lusted in your heart. You've ruined someone's reputation. You've been selfish. You've judged others more harshly than yourself. You've boasted and looked down on others. You've listened to fear instead of faith. You, too, have abandoned your Savior. And Satan, the accuser, is right there to point it out. I believe it's C.S. Lewis who talks about rats in the cellar. And he says that when you open the doors to the cellar, that is the basement, you open the doors to the cellar, and the light shines down the stairs, and all of a sudden the rats scurry and flee. And he says the rats were there before you opened the doors, but opening the doors and the light shining down simply exposed the rats." If you're like me in the last two weeks with the coronavirus pandemic and the anxiety and the stress and the news, I've seen all sorts of rats in my cellar. You see, our shame condemns us. Our guilt condemns us. But Mark, Mark embraces the shame. I was there. I fled too. I abandoned Jesus, Mark says. Why? Because you have to embrace the shame to get to the good news. If you don't own the shame, if you don't own the guilt, then you don't need a Savior. You don't need the Gospel. You see, Mark is giving you a picture of the Gospel. There were two men seized that night. In the darkness, by the crowd. In verse 46, Jesus was seized. And in verse 51, the young man was seized. One of them went free. He escaped. The other was condemned. And the one who was condemned, he was the one who was innocent. This time, the innocent didn't go free. There's no Andy Dufresne. There's no Walter McMillan. Jesus was condemned to death, death on a cross, where he would be stripped naked. It's the most shameful death imaginable. And after Jesus died... Joseph of Arimathea convinces Pilate to give him Jesus' body. And Joseph takes Jesus down off of the cross. And do you know what he does with Jesus' naked body? Joseph, in Mark 15, 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking Jesus down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud or cloth and laid him in the tomb. And that's the only other time that that word linen cloth is used in the gospel of Mark. It's only four times, twice in our passage and twice here. You see, Mark's nakedness was exposed by the linen cloth. And Jesus' nakedness was covered by the linen cloth. Jesus' shameful nakedness covers Mark's shameful nakedness. And it can cover yours, too. Here in Mark, the disciples fled. All all of them. But later, they would be martyred. They would stand for their faith. They would fulfill their vow. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they would. They would all die. So what changed? What changed in the disciples' lives that they went from fleeing to fulfilling their vow? That they went from fleeing to following Jesus, even to death itself? Well, like Mark, they put themselves in the story. They saw that they too were seized and condemned, and that their shame was exposed when they fled and abandoned Jesus. But Jesus, Jesus stood Condemned for them, exposed for them, abandoned for them. You see, the innocent didn't go free that night. The innocent was seized so that the condemned could go free. And understanding that in a profound and personal way utterly transformed their lives. What would it look like? If we believe that today more and more. You see, we have this deep desire to see the innocent go free. But, oh, brothers and sisters, if we stop and examine our lives, we know that we're not innocent. We're the condemned. We're guilty. We have rats in our cellar. We don't deserve to go free. But Jesus... Jesus was innocent. He deserved justification. He deserved exoneration. He deserved freedom. And yet he was seized and condemned and exposed and abandoned for you. He took the sword for you so that you could go free. And so that exhilaration... When Andy Dufresne crawls 500 yards through sewage to freedom, that's yours. The exhilaration when Walter McMillan gets released from death row and is set free, that's yours. Why? Because Jesus has taken your place and declared you innocent and set you free. The innocent was seized so that the condemned could go free. May we believe that today more and more deeply in a way that transforms our lives so that we might follow and not flee even unto death itself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we think about this call to discipleship in this season of life, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the one who is seized for us, that we might go free, that we might be free to follow you in this confusing time, to follow you even unto death itself. Father, would you make the gospel real in our hearts that we might live out of that day after day after day. I ask this in the name of the innocent one who is seized so that the condemned could go free, even Jesus. Amen. Receive now the Lord's benediction as he puts his good name on you in these hard times. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. And all God's people said, Amen.